Who are we? How do we see and experience the world? What are the hidden forces that drive us? Why do we act, think, and feel the way we do? And how can we become our best, most authentic selves? Welcome to Typology, a series of freewheeling conversations in which we use the Enneagram typing system to explore the mystery of the human personality. I'm Ian Cron. Hey everyone, welcome to the Typology Podcast. Here's a few things I want you to know before I introduce this week's episode. First, if you're new to the Enneagram and you want to learn more about it, just go to the podcast page at typologypodcast.com and download a free chapter from my book, The Road Back to You, titled Finding Your Type. Now, if you'd rather listen to a quick primer on the Enneagram rather than read one, you could download and listen to our very first episode titled Introducing Typology and the Enneagram on the podcast page as well. Second, while you're on the Typology website, visit the About page and take my introductory Enneagram assessment to start the journey toward identifying your Enneagram number. Finally, at the end of each show, I offer a couple of practical suggestions for how the Enneagram number we talked about on that week's episode can begin their transformational work and move toward becoming their most authentic selves. So be sure to listen all the way through to the end. Now, to our show. In 1991, tennis superstar Andre Agassi appeared in a television ad for a camera called the Canon Rebel. On the set, the fashionably dressed Agassi steps out of a white Lamborghini sports car, lowers his Ray-Bans halfway down the bridge of his nose, looks right into the camera with his cocky gaze, and says, Image is everything. I watched that old commercial on YouTube the other day, and I thought to myself, wow, that guy's a poster child for not very self-aware Enneagram 3s. Enneagram 3s are called the performers. These folks are success-oriented, image-conscious, and they're wired for productivity. They're motivated by a compulsive need to succeed or to a appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. Performers see a world that values people more for their accomplishments, like for what they do, rather than valuing them for who they are. Driven by a need for approval and admiration, threes focus all their energies on winning and looking good doing it. As you listen to today's show, you'll realize that there's a lot to love about threes when they're healthy. Our guest, Jeff Goins, is a self-aware Enneagram three who really wants to become his best, most authentic self, and he's doing the necessary work, or dare I say, successfully doing the work, to get there. Jeff is an award-winning blogger, sought-after speaker, and best-selling author of five books. He teaches online courses, and he's pretty sure he makes the world's best guacamole. He lives with his family here in Nashville, and more importantly, he's my friend. So, enough idle yapping from me. Let's get to it. My friend Jeff Goins, welcome to Typology. Good to be here. I'm delighted that uh, you are here in the 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 black booth yeah. at the Weld Community Workspace in Nashville, Tennessee, with me. And and uh, I was just thinking about the first time that we met, and that must have been seven years ago. I think it was when you came out with your memoir. Right. So that's about. I guess that's about seven years ago. Yeah. Wow. That was something. You came over to the house. Yeah. And you, did you do an interview with me? Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, that's great. 
I, I remember the afternoon well because I think we went off and talked in all kinds of other directions that day, and it was it was more than an interview, it as was I recall. A, it was a lot of fun, and I, I remember you specifically talking about um, – because uh, you're in your house, and I was looking at your bookshelf, which is something that I do. I think maybe you do that too. Oh, totally. And you were talking about, I mean, gosh, this was seven years ago. So you were bemoaning the loss of insight that you have into people's lives as, you know, we buy more digital books and you don't know, you, like you can tell who a person is by looking at their bookshelf. And I was, you know, examining who you were looking at all these different things. And I remember, I remember that. Okay. So I, you have really, this is still an issue for me, although it's it's nice to hear that paper you know, people were returning to paper, you know. Yeah. But I did used to be able to go into people's houses, and I could almost trace the arc of their personal or spiritual development based on the books that I could see on their shelves. Wow. So between that, and I also bemoan the loss of uh, album artwork. Yes. Now we just cherry pick off a of Spotify or something, but, you know, it used to be a whole experience. But Right. We, I will reserve that for another show, but that's another kind of like uh, issue in my life where it just yeah. annoys me. So, mm-hmm. so you are a three on the Enneagram. I think so, yeah. Yeah, the achiever, sometimes known as the performer. Yes. And uh, just a remarkable type. And uh, actually, it's funny how many people in my life who are dear, dear friends are threes. Hmm. Wonderful human beings. So tell me, how did you reach the conclusion that you were a three? Well, this is a pretty recent thing. Um, I heard about the Enneagram a few years ago. I used to work for a mission organization, and the um, founder, my boss, was really into Richard Rohr. And I think that was probably where I first started hearing about it, you know, seven, eight years ago. And then just, you know, friends around Nashville started talking about it. And I was like, all right, another personality test, you know. And I took the test, um, and I think I originally typed as an eight with a seven wing. And I remember texting you right around the time that you were working on or this book was coming out, I think, uh, the road back to you. And um, you were surprised by that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this makes me insecure. (laughs) Well, no, if you were an eight, it would not have made you insecure. It absolutely did, like (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> Other people's perception of me uh, in many ways d- defines my own perception of myself, you know? And so I Could you was, just repeat that? Other people's perception of me in in some ways defines my own perception of myself. Fascinating. And so if somebody – like you like you had cognitive dissonance, you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't know you that well, uh, but I wouldn't have figured you for an eight. And I was like, oh, okay. And that just bothered me. And so I was feeling some cognitive dissonance myself, a struggle, an internal struggle with kind of where I was at career-wise. I was running this online business and also writing books. And I had the best – this is 2015. I had the best year ever, made the most money, uh, had a best-selling book, bought a new house, like got all the things I never thought I would have ever achieved. And by the end of the year, I felt sort of uh, you know, empty. Uh, and, and I was um, not uh, depressed or like sad about it. I was just kind of underwhelmed. Mm. And so it just – I went on a retreat, uh, you know, did a little bit of personal uh, reflection and introspection. And at some point I kind of returned to the Enneagram. I think it was around this time that I read your book. Um, so this would have been maybe 2016. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I took your test – and I came back as a three. I took a few more tests, came back as a three. And then I texted you and you're like, yeah, that sounds better. And then we got together for lunch for like mm. two hours and kind of broke it down. And have you ever had an experience and you're not a three, so maybe you haven't had this experience, but where somebody, you know, said something to you that like changed the way you looked at everything. And and when I read that the name of a, the three was a performer. That one word, I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I um, looked back on my life through a different lens. Because, the you know, the eight, I was like, okay, I've always kind of been a leader. I'm pretty decisive. And uh, I, I tend to get things done, uh, which is the extent of my understanding of the eight. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And then I started living into that. In the same way that when... 
uh, I was hired pretty much right out of college um, to work for this nonprofit. And my boss said, you're a leader. You're like, you're like me. And so I was like, okay, I got to be like this person. You right. Know? Now, yeah. so it's interesting that you say that because that would be a, a three response. Of line, course. Yeah. Right. right. Other, because you just said other people's perceptions of me yeah. determine or defines my perception of myself. Mm-hmm. That is a very three statement. Yeah. And, and so when I read Performer, I was like, in just like a very literal way, I go back and I look at my life and I go, always played music. Favorite part of it was doing it in front of an audience, mm-hmm. not making a record. I acted in plays in high school and college, got into public speaking. And then even, you know, as a writer, uh, one of the things I initially really loved about writing was blogging. And it was uh, sort of practicing in public, sharing my work in a way where if it was good or it resonated, I'd get a comment. People would say, hey, I saw this and it mattered to me. Mm. So for you, I mean, one of the 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 underlying motivation of the three is to the need to succeed mm-hmm. or to appear successful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing a laugh right here. Yeah. To appear successful right. and to avoid failure yeah. at all costs, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So... Was when you get comments, when you get feedback from people, when you are able to, because what threes are, one of their superpowers is, is in the moment, they can look into people's eyes and faces and see the effect they are having on the other person. And if Mm -hmm. the other person's not responding favorably, they can read it in the eyes, in the body language. They'll tweak their self-presentation to get that person's approval. So. Mm comments, blogging, all these things. Were these supply sources, you know, for admiration, which is a big sort of desire on the part of threes? Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know that I would have thought of it as admiration, but I think like for most of my life, there was just this desire to be seen. Mm. I was thinking about this recently. I grew up in a very loud household. Uh, I am one of four siblings. I'm the eldest. There's a 19-year spread between me and the youngest uh, of my siblings. And, um, and you know, my mom and dad, uh, so, you know, family of six, m- mostly a family of five growing up. And then my brother came along when I was in college. But we interrupt each other. Like, that's how we have conversations. And it wasn't until many years later where I realized this isn't 100%, you know, healthy and functional. And uh, when I married uh, a, a woman who didn't do that, she's like, stop interrupting me. I was like, I'm just talking. Yeah, but when you're talking while I'm talking, that's called interrupting. And so I think <laughs> <laughs> like, but, but like you'd be saying your thing, right? right? And if I wanted to be heard, I'm talking about growing up in my household, I could not wait for you to finish saying your thing because you'd never finish. Like this was just the way we worked. And so if I wanted to say my thing, you'd be talking and I would start talking. You'd keep talking and eventually you'd realize I'm not going to stop talking and I'd raise my voice or whatever. You'd pause and then I'd say my thing and then I'd keep talking and then you'd kind of layer on top of me and that's how it went. And I think, um, you know, looking back on this, I go, you know, there's a strong desire need for me to just feel like I'm being heard. Mm, that you're being seen, that you're yeah. – that people are uh, in touch with your presence and its importance in that space at that moment. Right. And I, I never played sports other than like, you know, playing soccer in like third grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was never athletic. And so um, I had to find other outlets to perform. And I was always shy. So it wasn't like I was an outgoing, rambunctious kid, but I wanted to be seen and I would find outlets, creative outlets. And I think the first real outlet for me was uh, in sixth grade, I won the school spelling bee. And um, my mom loved English. And, and so she would literally read me the dictionary on car road trips, which I thought was totally normal. Looking right. back, I'm like, this is not normal. People don't do this. <laughs> and I was like, this is a thing that I can win. Mm. I, I love words. I'm good at English. Uh, I've been doing, you know, little school spelling bees yeah, for the past few years or whatever. And so I studied that every night for hours. I knew the list because they give you the list of potential words to choose from, and there's thousands of them, right? I knew every word in there. I didn't even know what they meant. Uh, and at the end of the spelling bee, it was just me and this eighth grader. 
right? And I was this little, chubby, long-haired, uh, grunge music-listening kid who was often mistaken for a girl. I hadn't gone through puberty. So very insecure. I had long hair, very chubby, wore lots of baggy flannels. And I'm standing up against this kid who, you know, could beat me up. And I beat him. Mm. And the whole school cheered. Mm. And I was like, okay, like I can do this. I can be the word guy. Wow. So there's so much in this that I, I'm not quite <laughs> sure which which piece of spaghetti to pull out of, sure, the, out of yeah, the thing right. at, at once. But here's a question for you. Who initiated for you the spelling bee? Like, was that your mom's idea first? Like, you ought to do the spelling bee or was it your idea first? I don't know. I don't remember. I know that my mom wasn't very good at school. I mean, she didn't mm-hmm. tell me this. And she eventually, neither of my parents went to college. My mom eventually went back and got her bachelor's degree not so long ago. Uh, but she was always really good at English. And so, you know, we tend to gravitate towards the things that we're good at. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that was very important to her. And I think because it was important to her, it became important to me. My parents never really said, hey, go do this. Uh, I do know that my success in life was pretty important to my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't go to college, and one of the reasons I went to college is because he lost jobs or his pat was passed up for promotions, uh, at least according to him, because he didn't have a diploma. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, it's just a piece of paper, but in this world it matters, so you need to go to college. And it, looking back, uh, my dad is is like a he's a very blue collar guy, uh, you know. Um, uh, was a construction worker for a while, managed an apartment complex for a while, sold cars for a while, like did a bunch of different things. Uh, I just did whatever he had to do to provide for his family and make a living. Um, and he's a he's a musician. He's a pretty laid back guy. Uh, but I, I there was at some point some idea that I got from my dad that like I need to be achieving stuff. And I don't know how much of it was just me placing pressure on myself and how much of it was, you know, uh, him saying, hey, this is really important. Yeah. So this is this is wonderful because the the kind of wounding message and we, every number picks up a wounding message right, sure. perceived or real, right, right? articulated or not. Um the message that threes often get in childhood is it's not okay to have your own identity or feelings. Mm. So, mm. so what that what you're already going hmm. So tell me before I keep going. What, what did that ring a bell or? Yeah, I mean it was uh, it was a loud household, right? And uh, yeah, and and if uh, I, uh, you know, if you got out of line, uh, I mean you were told to be quiet, right? So Carl Jung has this mm-hmm. great statement where he, he talks about the notion that much of the time, children often end up living the unlived lives of their parents. Right. So, you know, if you have parents that are, you know, uh, blue collar, not particularly educated, they, they, they apply either again uh, – right up front or quietly mm-hmm. to a child, we want you to live the life we did not have. Right. right? We want you to get educated. We want you to, to do all these things. And in a way, what the child might pick up in that is, it's not okay for me to have my own identity or feelings. I have to kind of, because let's say you didn't want to go to college. Let's say you, you know what I mean? But, but you feel this pressure to live the unlived life mm-hmm. of the parent, which I can imagine would be a springboard uh, into a type three personality because right. you're trying to make do all these accomplishments in these areas you're right to you know accomplish all kinds of things because you know that's going to win the love of the important people in your life mm-hmm. yeah how does that you does that ring like a your it, story it does and and I, like I'm being a hundred percent honest when I say I, I like it's hard to pull apart and go like who initiated this and mm-hmm. how much of this was internal. Mm-hmm. But I do remember a conversation with my dad not too long ago where I was frustrated because, uh, you know, most of the things that I've done, accomplished in life, particularly in the past few years, becoming an author, starting a business, becoming more successful than honestly I ever thought I would be. And and for me, it was 
I never wanted to like go make a bunch of money. I just didn't want to be broke and I didn't want to need anything from anybody. And I, and I very much cared about independence. But there was this moment where um, uh, I, you know, this was not too long ago and I had a conversation with my dad and I got really frustrated and I said, gosh, dad, like, what do I need to do to make you proud of me? Mm. And, and I was thinking, like, I said, I've never asked you for money. Uh, I've never, like, needed anything from you. I've, I've went out and paid for college through grants and scholarships and, you know, working during the summer. Uh, I graduated with honors. Uh, even when things were tight, like, I figured it out. You know, I, I, I didn't have sex before marriage. Like, I didn't <laughs> knock anybody up. You know, Good. like, all these things that were just really important to me. Uh, and I grew up, I remember I didn't grow up in church, uh, but I always had this like really strong moral compass. And I like did bad things and, you know, did dumb things, but I always felt horribly guilty about it. So I could never do like really, like some really bad things that my friends got away with because I would either tell my parents or I just would feel really bad about it. And so like in my mind, I'm just like sort of, you know, stacking up this list of, uh, moralistic accomplishments, uh, including like best-selling book and, you know, don't have any debt and all these things. And my dad was sort of taken aback and he goes, uh, uh, nothing. I'm, I'm kind of proud of everything that you've done. And, and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So this is really powerful because for every number to hear this, we gather messages growing up, right. and, and some are particularly powerful. Mm -hmm. And one of the phrases like is they're energy-laden beliefs, mm -hmm. right? And those beliefs, if they remain underneath the waterline of consciousness, are influencing our behaviors and the way we think, act, and feel, our personalities right. in ways we cannot imagine, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So for you to hear that this belief that you'd had, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, it sounds like sort of the formulation of a, of a belief. Like, what do I got to do, like, to win my father's approval? That's mm -hmm. a powerful belief, you know, right. working underneath the waterline. If you don't know, for example, that's actually that goal, right, mm -hmm. is underneath the, the waterline of consciousness. I mean, that's a powerful motivator. Right. And I was like 30 years old when right. I had that conversation. And that's the, one of the gifts of the Enneagram, right? right. Is it, it helps us to bring these powerful motivators, these influencing messages in our life above the waterline of mm. consciousness mm -hmm. so that we can see them. It doesn't always feel good, right? right? It yeah. can create grief. It can sure. create all kinds of things. Yeah. But man, otherwise, you know, there's a shadow government in yeah. our head right. running the show uh, and you know, we've got to out these beliefs mm -hmm. and begin to make different choices in light of what we now know is the truth. Yeah. And I think, I mean, uh, 2015, you know, I was talking about that was the year where all these things happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I wrote uh, an email to a number of influencers and mentors and basically said, hey, I have, I've made more money. I've accomplished, I have more success. I have more fame than I ever thought I would. And I'm kind of underwhelmed. Like, what should I do about this? Was basically the email. I sent it to a bunch of different people asking for feedback. And then I got a bunch of replies and I took those on a personal retreat for a couple of days in December. And one of the replies was from the pastor who married my wife and me, uh, who had moved away a few year years ago and we had kind of stayed in, in loose touch. Um, and he was like somebody who would like never say anything critical of anybody ever. And I emailed him and he replied and he said, Jeff, it's so great that you're not – I'm glad to hear that you're not overwhelmed by your own success. But I'm not sure that feeling underwhelmed is necessarily what I would be feeling. And you asked what I would do if I were you and I think I'd be grateful. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, gratitude. And so I think that was a sign to me, I, like driving, 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 doing all this stuff – literally accomplished more than I ever thought because I came from – I didn't really come from means. And so here I am doing things that are – were really beyond my imagination. And I'm just sort of like, nah, that's okay. You know, I guess I should – should I just do more of this? Mm. And, and it was a sign to me that something wasn't quite right and that the thing that I was chasing was an illusion. And what was that? What – 
success, right? Like right. a very vague idea that I had to accomplish more uh-huh. and it was never going to be completely satisfying. And so I know that there is a very real healthy part of me that like anything I do, I'm going to want to win at it. I'm going to want to do it well. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a healthy version of that that I'm, you know, wrestling with right now, trying to embrace. But um, what drove me to accomplish a lot of those things was this unhealthy feeling of not being enough. But if I just do more, have a best-selling book, then I'll be a real writer. Make a million dollars, then I'll be a real entrepreneur. You know, have a bigger house, then I'll like, then I'll feel okay. And, and I didn't feel okay. And and so I was like, okay, I don't think accomplishment is bad. I don't think ambition is bad, but there's something wrong here. I've got to be able to go and achieve things and sometimes not succeed at them and still be okay. Mm, That is really powerful. And, you know, the part of the healing message for for threes is you are not what you do. You are not loved for what you do, but for who you are. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's the transition there for you Mm -hmm. to believe that, you know, I can be loved, not for my success, but simply for who I am. Right. So how old are you? 34. So you are well ahead of the curve for a three. So (laughs) let me tell you why. Because most threes, in order to start doing their work, before they wake up, they'll stay asleep in their personality longer than some other numbers will because it's working for them. Right. They're successful. They're doing great. They're out there killing it. They look good. <laughs> it's like, well, why would I? Why would I want to yeah. sort of like you know do my work if it's working for right. me, mm-hmm. right? And usually they're forty-five or fifty before they have some kind of an event, mm-hmm. some kind of a crash, mm-hmm. where they're asking the kinds of questions you are, r- r- you know, right at this moment in your life. Like, and and also threes until they have the crash, are not very self-reflective. Mm. Like, w- why go down into the basement to see what's wrong down there mm-hmm. if, as I said, everything's looking great mm-hmm. on the surface, yeah. right? So at 2 o'clock in the morning, okay. all of us have something that wakes us up periodically, some mm. you know, kind of primal terror or, you know what I mean, a dream or something that wakes us up and we, we feel a lot of anxiety or sadness or something. Do you have anything that wakes you up at 3 a.m. as a three that that worries you or frightens you that you dwell on in the middle of the night? I, I think, uh, I mean, I tend to sort of overcommit to things. I'm in a mm. season of like, I'm stretched really thin right now and it doesn't feel good. And I've got to I've got to fulfill these commitments, but then, you know, I want to not do that again to myself for a while. And um, the thing that it would wake me up right now would be the anxiety that I haven't done something that I'm supposed to do. Hmm. I have this uh, perpetual dream. I don't know if you're into dream analysis or not, but, um, you know, every, I don't know, uh, every once in a while, I'll have this recurring dream. And you'll have it five or six times in a row, and then I won't have it for, you know, a year or something. And it's this dream that I'm back at college. I'm not naked or anything. I'm back at college. Oh, I'm disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm back at college. And um, it is is the last semester of senior year. And I'm like two weeks away from graduation. And I'm like looking at my transcript or something. And I realize there's a class that I signed up for that I've never gone to. Mm. And there's, there's like there's this anxiety. There's no way for me to catch up on the classwork and uh, because I've been left to manage this schedule myself, I've, I've missed this and I have this responsibility that I completely forgot about and it's some dumb science class or something that I have no interest in and so I like went like the first you know day of classes and never went back and, and so there's this work left undone and there is this extreme anxiety that because this thing is unfinished, I'm not going to be able to move forward. And I think that that's um, like that's how I feel when, I, when I've got a big project ahead of me that I'm not going to finish or, or I missed something. And now it's going to come around and bite me. 
and everybody's going to see it and I'm going to miss out. On and, and what are they going to feel? I mean, like what, what's their perception of you going to be if you miss it? Uh, they're going to be disappointed and think I'm a fake and a failure. Mm, like, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, anxious about people think – not just what they think of me uh, because if, pe- like, if I'm thinking about what people think of me, there is this um, strong sense that they think I'm not legit or cool or um, you know, successful. Right. So you just said two very big things for threes, right? One is that they'll see me as a failure and as a fraud, mm-hmm, right? right? Mm-hmm. So obviously the intense fear of failure because threes equate success and accomplishment with love, right? Right. That they get through accomplishment and love what most of us get through relationships. We get our love through, you know, other sources, but threes uh, just have this unchallenged assumption that love comes through accomplishment and success. So mm-hmm. if you don't finish class or do anything, you know, like these things, it's like, okay, this is a threat at the primal level from, for, you know, it threatens my survival right. at some level emotionally. Yeah. But the fraud thing is huge. So I want to ask you this. Um, do you ever feel like a fraud that if people were to pull back the curtain, right, that they would realize, oh, pull back the curtain of a p- p- the appearance of success, that what they would see is an empty space there. Like there'd be no one there, you know? What, 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 let me ask you, what would be behind the curtain if people pulled it back? What are you afraid that people would see as a three? I mean, I think a better question is, do I ever not feel like a fraud? Oh, boy. <laughs> because I can always find something that I'm failing at mm. or not doing as well as somebody else. I mean, that's like a perpetual thing for me. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I know that there's like a decent front because, you know, how I'm perceived is important to me. And I don't think that I'm fronting, but there's a very conscious, aware part of me that goes, I know this is what people see, particularly with having a blog and being an author and being, you know, somewhat visible to the world. I can control that. So I know what 99% of people are seeing. The thing that I am embarrassed about is they would pull back the curtain. I was thinking this today. I was like, you know, before I came over here, uh, my wife was like, I need you to do this, this, and this before you leave. And my son throws a fit. Uh, and my wife's trying to discipline him, but I'm trying to get ready to go out the door and I want to help her. It's just chaos. You know, it's life. And and there's a, you know, very real part of me that's going, man, if people could see this, they would not think you are that great. Uh, and and you would just be like a like a normal person. I think it was Eugene Peterson who describes the church as a group of embarrassingly ordinary people. Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's me. I am embarrassingly ordinary. And if people realized how mundane and messy, like really messy my life is or like my car or office is, right? Uh, I, I would, you know, like it would be really embarrassing. Um, would it be embarrassing or threatening too? Or I mean, embarrassing, yes. But is there a part of you that's like, well, man, if they saw that, then it would put my love source at risk. You know, my admiration source at risk. I think it would affirm the voice inside of me that says, see, like, you don't really deserve this and you're really not as great as some people think you are. Mm. And yeah, so in in, in a way, uh, I really want to protect that illusion. And in another way, like, I want the curtain to come down, mm. you know, because it takes a lot of energy to maintain – uh, this perception, and every day I feel like the reality, like pushing against the curtain. You know, try, like if you think about a, a theater, you know, where it, the, the curtains are closed, but you've got, you know, like it's like a f- f- fifth grade uh, class play, and the kids are like sticking their head, like they can't help but stick their heads out to see their parents. Like I feel like there's all these like embarrassing parts of my life that are like trying to pull the curtain open and stick their heads out. I'm like, no, 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 get back here. Mm. So we, we're going to do a show on wings coming up uh, in the next uh, couple of months. And so for those of you who don't know what a wing is, adjacent to your basic or your core number, 
uh, there are two other numbers. So in the case of a three, you can have a three with a four wing or a three with a two wing. Right. And my hunch is, based on what you're describing, because this would be a good educational moment for folks out there who don't know very much about yeah. wings, you sound like a three with a four wing. Right. Is yeah. that is I, that true? I think that's true. I think that, I think that um, you know, we talked about this over lunch one time and kind of broke it down and it definitely resonated. But I think in, in the most of the tests I've taken, it said that as well, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So wings, uh, you're, we think that um, the way that wings work is that whatever your dominant wing is, in your case, that's three with four, mm -hmm. you have access to and you're flavored by mm -hmm. many of the characteristic traits of a four right. without being a four. You're yeah. just picking up some of those traits. Yeah. Now, often in the second half of life, you might migrate over to being a three hmm. with a two wing, okay? Mm, okay? So let me just describe a three with a four because I think this will be enlightening for you sure. and for others because what I'm hearing as you're talking is a lot of what is typical of fours. Yeah, right, Okay. Uh -huh. uh, so let me just sort of, sort of like run some of these by you. Um, threes often struggle with if they're particularly in the average to unhealthy space, with the sort of chameleon-like behavior, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They, they right. can really read a room and know who they need to become or shape-shift into in order to win the admiration and the love of the room. So that everyone in the room goes, damn, that Jeff Goins, man, he is the bomb! I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then sure. you go to a room of, you know, an entirely different demographic of people and mm -hmm. shape-shift into whoever you think in your mind you need to become in order to win their approval and love, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a three with a four wing, this is torturous because <laughs> it's a kind of a tortured number combination, yeah. three with mm -hmm. four, because fours are placed, I mean, that put a hugely high value on authenticity. Yep. So that four who's all wrapped up in authenticity and, and you know, just being true to the self is prosecuting the three mm -hmm. who's willing to put on a mask to fool the crowd, you know, in order to, you know, uh, get love, to get to be perceived as successful. Yeah. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, going back to this uh, 2015 incident, had a lot of success, was underwhelmed by it, made me realize, you know, what's going on here, what's missing? Um, certainly not more of the same. And it was that. It was I achieved all this stuff and had one conversation with a friend. And we went for a walk. We were in Portland, Oregon. And I said, hey, do you have any feedback for me? Um, I've always, uh, I think almost always appreciated how other people perceive me, uh, partly because I, you know, get some identity out of it. And um, I was like, well, what, you know, what am I missing? Like, what am I not aware of? And... He was like, well, um, you know, I don't know. I was like, no, you know, come on. And very gentle spirit. And he said, well, you know, when you did this thing, I was like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, that thing, you know, I don't know. I know people do it and it works and it's okay. Like, I don't think it's like morally wrong. It just felt like not you. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I agree. And so for me, there's always this struggle to achieve. Uh, I've been seeing a therapist for a couple of years now. And, um, you know, I was working, I was launching a book. Yeah, my my, my, my book uh, mm. that just came out. And I was like, you know, I, I, this last book was a bestseller. This one has to be. He said, but what if it's not? I was like, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's got to be. He's like, but what if it doesn't succeed? Like, what will that mean to you? And I was like, I don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. Like, what do you mean, what if I don't? Like, I'm going to. Like, this will happen. Uh, and so, you know, for me, um, like, su succeeding, putting my mind to something is, uh, and doing it is really important. And and yet, whenever I accomplish that thing, there is sort of uh, an internal accuser who says, this isn't real. This isn't you. This isn't your authentic self. Uh, this isn't art. This is fake. There's that four wing. <laughs> so it is a struggle. But I can't like just be the artist, you know, sitting at the coffee shop with the beret, 
just like making my art because I feel like a loser doing that. That's your three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is yeah. kind of hell. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think threes with fours, they, they tend to be, you know, more introspective. Yep. They are a lot more, and I'm going to circle back to this, in touch with their shame. Yep. And, uh, and with their feelings. I mean, threes typically... Uh, well, they are uh, more than any other type on the Enneagram. The number which is l- the least in touch with their own feelings, um, recognizing them, being able to name them, you know, uh, just kind of like a little bit clueless, you know, mm-hmm. r- compared to, let's say, their roommates in that triad, the twos and the fours, right? Mm-hmm. Threes are just a little bit asleep. Mm-hmm. to their feelings. Yeah. Um, but this three of four is a little bit more awake than a three with a two wing right. is. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about shame. Okay. So for the sake of simplicity, it's this is pretty simplistic, but shame is the fundamental belief that there is something wrong with you, that that unlike guilt, which is I've done something wrong, shame is I am at my core something wrong. Right. What's your twos, threes, and fours in that they're in a shame triad. So Mm -hmm. shame is driving the show a lot. Yeah. That's the interior kind of, I I like the word inscape. Their inscape, right, is colored by shame. Mm -hmm. What has that been like for you? What has shame what what role has shame played in your life as a three? In some ways it's driven me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mentioned I, I, I never really cared about making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because it just kind of seemed impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that we ever made more than like twenty thousand uh, dollars you know, growing up. And and we like we weren't like poor. Like I like the cupboards were never empty. Uh, but I remember like bill collectors calling during dinner time and mm-hmm. like don't answer the phone. And so at some point, uh, I was actually doing some some coaching uh, with a, a leadership coach, uh, a guy named Tom Davis. And he said this, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but he said um, basically by the age of six, we have um, uh, made up a belief system mm-hmm. that can kind of guide our life until we – become more self-aware and, and kind of disrupt that belief system and say, right. is this true? And he says, so what do you remember believing at age six? Mm-hmm. And I think I was about six. I, I don't know exactly. But our, we were in, we were living in the suburbs of Chicago and uh, we were in St. Charles, Illinois. And I remember, I think my mom and dad had a fight or something. And my mom just left the house with me and she's like, let's go to McDonald's. Right, McDonald's, and I said, "No, mom, we don't have to do that." She's like, "No, let's go. It'll, it'll be fun." And I was like, "No, we can't afford that." And my, I, I remember this. My mom looked at me and she was like, "What? What do you, what do you mean we can't a- a- afford this?" I was like, "No, you know, we just can't. It's it's okay. Like I'm all right." And um, I re- I remember even you know seeing her shocked. And and realizing that, you know, she and my dad had been talking about money around me and I was just picking up on that stuff. And mm-hmm. I had conversations with her as an adult where I would share things. I was like, I remember when this happened. She's like, you remember that? She's like, God, it is true that kids see everything. And uh, so I remember at, you know, six, seven, eight years old, something like that, um, like there's never going to be enough. Mm. And and so your job is to just not need anything. No, mom, I, I we don't. I don't need that. That's okay. Don't worry about that. So um, you know, and I remember, um, like in middle school, you you get these graphing calculators. I think this is in like an eighth grade. These these fancy calculators that right Texas these, Instruments. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you had to get the TI. 82 one year and then the next year I had to get the TI-83 and these are like $80 calculators right Uh, and this is 20 years ago and um, I remember my parents like like got me 
a black calculator that was some off brand mm -hmm. instead of the blue calculator, which is the Texas Instruments one. And I went to class. I'm like, this basically does the same thing, and it's like half the price. And I was like, okay, cool. And I remember going to school, and like the buttons were arranged differently. And mm -hmm. the teacher had like the overhead projector where they're like showing you, okay, to do this, graph this equation, press this button here. I'm like, I don't have that button. It's not here. I've got to like function number two plus the letter three, you know, to get to that. And just, I was like, like, this is, I'm going to fail. Like, this isn't going to work. And I remember feeling really uh, anxious. And so, long story short, I think I don't like that feeling because uh, now all of a sudden, like, I don't have the right calculator. I don't have the right clothes. Like, I feel fake and like a fraud and I'm going to fail. And so, shame was the motivator for me not to become really, really successful, but I just didn't want to be in that place of need where other people could sort of look down on me. And mm -hmm. if I could just not need anything from anyone, uh, then I would be okay. And so I think shame in some ways motivated me to succeed. So we're going to do a show on shame too. Yeah. Um, because first of all, next to love, which I do believe is the most powerful force in the yeah. universe, I think shame is a close second. Yeah. And part of shame is the fear of being publicly exposed yeah. um, as different, as lesser than, as fundamentally flawed in a way that others are not, yeah. um, and that you'll be chucked out of the herd as a result, you yeah. know. Uh, and interesting, I think what oftentimes what people fear about shame actually is more the physical sensation of it. Right. Like in the body, like shame is a horrible feeling in your, like, like it's yeah. a terrible feeling. Mm -hmm. And you know, what that – it sounds like that story aroused in you as a young budding three, right, <laughs> is that sense of I don't ever want to have this feeling. This feeling in my body, this feeling in my heart, this yeah. is an awful sensation. Right. Um, and so I really – I identify that because as a four, I too am in the shame triad, right? right? Yeah. And I'd say shame has really cast a very long shadow Right. Over my life, and yeah. and uh, one that I continue to try and rinse, but out. But but it's so it 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 continues to appear in different disguises. That's the problem, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's the lather, rinse, repeat. I mean, you know, when it comes to shame. So um, I want to just jump on one last thing okay. because twos, threes, and fours all struggle with issues related to identity, and in order to the uncertainty about identity. So. All three uh, projected images, right, in order to um, hide or the sense that they are absent of an identity and also to craft an identity, right? Mm -hmm. So the three would do it by projecting an image of success and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So today, Jeff Goins, 34. Where does your identity come from? The pause. That's a good question. <laughs> well, you know, like you don't want the throwaway answer, right. you know. Um, I, I think it's, you know, a mixture of sources. Um, we didn't talk much about – we didn't really talk about marriage at all. But um, I was thinking when you were talking, I um, – especially early on in our marriage, like I tried to do all these things uh, that made me a good husband. I thought made me a good husband because that identity was really important to me. Uh, and when we would get into these fights, I would get so angry with my wife. I mean, I'd blow up, explosive anger, rage, because it was like I was hurt, I was mad, I was sad, you know, so like all these things. And it was because I was like, I don't like what do you want from me? I wash the dishes. I clean the house. I, you know, we do date nights. Like I, I, I do these things that are like more than most of my friends do, you know? And, and why are you still like, what else do you want from me? And I remember one time she said, you, I want you. Like you keep telling me all these things you're doing for me. Mm. Like I want you. And, and so like even today, I think part of my identity comes from uh, what I do. Uh, but I do believe in a soul, you know, I do think that there is a true self in there. I'm a big fan of Thomas Merton, you know, he talks about shadow self and, 
uh, you know, false self, true self. And he says, he says something to the effect of, um, uh, the, the hardest illusions to recognize are the ones that we believe about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I want my identity to come from God, you know, from who I was created to be, from like who I really am, you know, deep down inside. And I want the work that I do, the, the, the things that I create and, you know, how I perform in the world. I want that to flow from like, this is who you are. You know, the activity follows the identity. Uh, and I want, I want the activity to, to be true and good and pure. And, and in order for that to happen, I think it has to come from a true place, not a false place. And so uh, I, I, a friend of mine, I said, you know, has this quote, like, who am I really? I don't know. <laughs> right. And, and so I, I'm trying to break that down and get down to who am I really? You know, uh, who like who who does God see me as and, and how can I get, you know, as close to that person as I can so that the things that I do, it comes from there. I don't have to question whether or not it's authentic because it, it's coming from, you know, a, a pure place. So in short, um, yeah, I think it's still a mixture. Yeah. You know, every time I do something, I'm going, what's the motive here? And every time somebody challenges something that that I do, it like literally this happened uh, on Twitter the other day. Somebody read uh, one line in, in one of my books, The Art of Work, and they said, this is a stereotype. And I was, and, and, and literally this is where my mind went. This is my fourth, this is my fourth book. I have, you know, I have five books out now. I was like, I have no legacy. Wow. I, I, I've wasted all this time writing this stuff and a hundred years from now, like I have, I have nothing pure. I have nothing good to say or share. And, you know, I'm wasting my life. Literally, like this is where I went. I was like, okay, like got some work to do. Wow. <laughs> Man, we all have work to do. And and I want to, before we, you know, jump off, sure. probably, I could have this conversation. We could go for hours no, no, here, you great. know, because yeah. you. you are so unusual um, as a, first of all, as I said, to be thinking this way as a three at 34 is like pretty, I don't think I've ever actually spoken to a younger three who has the level of, who has the level of self-insight huh. that you do. And without having hit a particular wall, I mean, right. I think, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive. And the desire to live out of this true self. And mm -hmm. I think that's the blessing of your four wing, that yeah. influence in there, but also just of your own heart. You mm -hmm. know, let's not just, you know, give it away to psychology of some kind. But I want to talk about your latest book, came out in June, yeah. Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. It's on Thomas Nelson. You have very impressive endorsements on the back. We got Seth Godin, Stephen Pressfield, John Acuff, Austin Kleon. I mean, you know, pretty pretty impressive. Yeah. Can you give us a short praises? Just give us a praises of what the book is about and who it's for. Yeah, so um, living in Nashville, you know, we, you and I both know a lot of artists, musicians, creatives, and I think uh, a lot of creative people tell themselves the story of the starving artist. Like, and it is a story. It is, a, it's a myth, and a myth is a story that we tell ourselves to make sense of the reality around us. And the myth of the starving artist says, uh, "There's no money in art. You can't succeed doing creative work for a living." And over the past several years, I've met two groups of people, starving artists and thriving artists. And everybody's familiar with the starving artist story. But I keep running into people, and I would identify as a thriving artist today. I'm making a living off of my art. And so this is a book that tells the other side of the story. You can do creative work and thrive without starving and without being a sellout. And that's what the book is about. Wow. So as you read the book, because I've had this experience, you know, I, I – when I was writing my memoir, I remember going, oh, my gosh, I was such a four at 20. I had no idea what the Enneagram was, but I look back <laughs> and I go, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. um, so as you think about this book, because mm -hmm. I just had a thought about it, like you're talking about how to be successful as an artist. It's almost like <laughs> how to be a three while being a four. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. You know, that's it's, insightful. You know, yeah, so as, as you look at it, like how does this book – how is this book a reflection – even unconsciously as you wrote it, of your of your threeness, of that that part of your soul. 
I think it's a great question. I start the book with uh, – there's like these 12 rules and I start with the book with this idea of the rule of recreation, which is it's, ne- it's never too late to recreate yourself, mm-hmm. to go accomplish something that you always said you were going to do. And the idea is um, you're not born an artist. You can become an artist. This is an action. This is a choice. And that very much is like if, – if you tell me it can't be done, that's like daring me to do it. So when people told – my whole life growing up – so. I used to draw cartoons when I was a kid. And when I was a teenager, I made music. And uh, I, I acted in plays. I used to do public speeches in college. I graduated college. I joined a band and we traveled for a year. And we were so broke that we had to stay in people's homes uh, you know, so that we covered the cost of lodging. And every few um, host homes that we'd stay in, somebody would say, this is great that you're doing this while you're young because when you get older, you're going to have to get a real job and you can't make any money playing music for a living. And that was like a dare to my threeness. You know, my four was like, yeah, you're right. That's probably true. I should go get a job. Uh, and I'll just do this on the side. And I did do that. But there was this, this thing lurking in me that for years was just getting more and more frustrated saying, dude, like you can do this. And so the first rule of the book is you can, you can recreate it. You can rewrite your story. And then I kind of go through these practical strategies on how to succeed. But then I end the book with sort of this, you know, four idea, which is somebody accused Walt Disney uh, at the height of his uh, success. You just you're just doing this for the money. You know, it's all commercial. And he responded to this person. He wrote them a letter and uh, and, and he was replying and he said, um, no, you got it wrong. We don't make movies to make money. We make money to make more movies. And so uh, the idea of this book is you need to make money off of your art so that you can make more art. But it really is about creating really great stuff. The money is a means, not a master. And so when when we think about the three, four breakdown, it's like I sort of start the book with this three idea. And I've started my career with like I'm going to do it. I'm going to make money. I can succeed at this. And as I sort of mature as a person and also as a writer – it, it, I'm moving more into the four territory of, yep, yeah, got to make the money, but this is really about leaving a legacy, doing interesting, important work. So the book itself, it sounds on the surface like, you know, this is for artists and creatives, but is it? what if you're not an artist or creative? Why, w- how would this book inform or help my life? I think everybody is creative in the sense that um, they can build on the work that has come before and they can do something new and interesting in their field. The book is a lot of stories. You know, I think this is one of the ways in which my three meets the four where I write kind of personal development books, but I try to do it in a very creative, artistic way because otherwise I would feel like a fake. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And and so, you know, I I wrote this book to basically say we're all artists in the sense that we're making stuff uh, every day if we want to. I mean, you can just sort of follow the status quo. uh, But I would argue that if you want to do interesting creative work, whether you're a lawyer, an accountant, or, you know, um, a writer – then uh, really the idea is you need to not think like a starving artist. I think you can be a baker and be a starving artist in the sense that you are sort of um, apologetic about your creative work and you're not really owning the fact that this is important. And if it's important, you have a responsibility to make this work thrive. So many people I know from entrepreneurs to corporate employees to you know musicians you know in Nashville, they sort of – minimize the importance and value of their work. And the argument of the book is really simple. Whatever story you tell yourself is the one that's going to come true. Mm. So the whole point of the book is uh, if you tell yourself the story of the starving artist, like it will come true. So if you go, well, the myth of the starving artist, what about this person who's starving? Yep. That like they believe the story and therefore it comes true. I mean, this is, this is what a myth does. It Mm -hmm. helps us understand our world If you tell yourself a different story, I can succeed doing this, whatever it is, your dream, passion, whatever, uh, then that can become true too. And there's lots of hard work. I'm not talking about faking it till you make it. But I do believe that we believe it till we become it. Mm. As you were saying that, I was thinking about that great Gandhi quote, Mm. you know, the one that says, he says, your beliefs become your thoughts. Uh Mm -hmm. Your thoughts become your words. Mm. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Yeah. 
Your habits become your values, and your values become your destiny. So this beginning with a belief and ending, you know, that belief will, in a, in a real way, determine destiny, mm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a quote in your book, and I want to close it, where you say, um, we are either becoming more of our true selves or drifting into a false self. There's that Merton yeah, language yeah, again. And that's language of the Enneagram, right? That yeah. our personalities really are just cover stories, mm-hmm. you know? And we, the journey of spiritual transformation is from this false self that we've adopted to find our way in the world into becoming our truest uh, self and out from which would flow our best work, our best mm-hmm. presence in the world. And I'm just so impressed today how far along you are on the journey mm-hmm. from the false self to the true and all the effort and energy that you've put into um, making that to advancing on that journey, right? Like, so going on retreats, asking friends for insights about your life. These are really wonderful practices and examples of things that all threes might be doing to, 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 to grow in terms of their own personality. Yeah. So I'm really grateful you were on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Yeah. You're coming back on. All right. I just interrupted you like, like you're one of your brothers. <laughs> I need to be heard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everybody, I want you to go out and make sure that you get a copy of this really wonderful book, Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age, or any of Jeff Goins's four other books. Go buy a, go buy a bundle. Mm. Go buy a bundle of all of them. Jeff, again, thank you for being on. Thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, our friendship. It means a lot to me. So at the beginning of the show, I said there's a lot to love and admire about threes who are doing the necessary work to become their true selves. And Jeff's a case in point. Being a three and living in America is like being an alcoholic living above a saloon. In our success and image-obsessed culture, threes are more revered and rewarded than just about any other number on the Enneagram. Because of that, Threes have to swim against the cultural riptide to become the most authentic expression of themselves. So I hope these suggestions help. First, if you're a three, it's important for you, like it is for every number, to develop a meditation practice. The reason it's important for you is your attention is so glued to activity and productivity, and meditation will teach you how to just be in the world, not just do, but be in the world. Second, if you're a three, I encourage you to find a spiritual director or therapist to accompany you on the journey toward reclaiming your authentic self. It's really hard to walk the path alone, And it's so tempting and easy for threes to slip back into packaging and marketing themselves for mass consumption again. And you need someone who can read your mail, who knows when you're beginning to fall back into that false persona and call you out on it. Third, challenge your definition of success. And then craft a new one based on your feelings, desires, and values, not those inherited from your family or culture. Next, I want you to take an inventory of who and what gets sacrificed in your life while you're frantically racing to cross the finish line first. Is it your spouse? Is it your kids, your health, your friendships? Whatever it is, write it down and own it. And lastly, Take a vacation and don't bring work with you. Did you hear that? Don't bring work with you. Just learn to be, to be present in the moment, to not be racing to accomplish the next thing so that, you know, you can win the admiration and approval of the world. You know, all of us need to hear we're loved for who we are rather than for what we do. 
But threes, you need to hear it until the day comes when you look in the mirror and see not a false image so much as the reflection of a son or daughter of the divine, of God. Threes, you'll know you're doing good work when you begin to believe you're loved just for who you are inside. And that's the truth. So are you a three? Do you have questions about threes or any other number? Do you have questions about the Enneagram in general? If so, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, typologypodcast.com, and submit a question or comment. I really do read them, and they help me decide what topics to tackle on future episodes. And don't forget, while you're on typologypodcast.com, you can download that beginner's chapter from my book titled Finding Your Type, or download and listen to the episode titled Introducing Typology and the Enneagram, and then take my introductory Enneagram assessment as well. Finally, if you like this show, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. It's a great way to help others find out about this show. Finally, thanks to my producer, Chad Michael Snavely, and my assistant, Wendy Nyborg, without whose help, I would be hopelessly lost. That's all for this week, folks. In the words of the author, Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. See you later. Later.